if these pools have like a couple hundred dollars worth of liquidity, this is plenty. I think we're within like three months of these actually launching. Are you serious? Should I, should we keep that in? Yeah, we can keep that in. When the booster separates from the second stage, sure. there's like a little like explosions that kind of break the rocket in half, right? The launch team wishes you good luck and Godspeed. Space Monkeys blasting off with Joe Petrowski. He's the systems parachains lead at the Web3 Foundation, but we've seen him do so many more things, runtime upgrades, working with other parachains. Finally, at last, we have him on the show. Fresh off a bicycle? Couple days. Been a couple days. Yeah. We're very happy to have him here. Joe, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. Good to have you here, man. Yeah, I'm excited. And my, I used to work in the space industry, so I'm excited to be on Space Monkeys. What did you do in the space industry? Uh, I worked on satellite launch, so shock and vibration simulation. You were simulating shock and vibrations for payloads to space? Yeah. Wow. Or more for the rockets that carry the payloads. I didn't work on the payloads themselves. So when you're simulating this, does this mean you were creating software to... Like in the rocket itself, you have a bunch of like avionics units, you have a bunch of valves and like hydraulic systems and stuff like this. And they have to be able to withstand certain shocks. Like, uh, for example, like when the booster separates from the second stage, sure. there's like little like explosions that kind of break the rocket in half, right? And you want to make sure that the avionics on the second stage are going to survive that the shock of that separation. So, uh, of course, like all the flights are instrumented. They have like accelerometers and stuff that's measuring this. And then there's lots of like test data as well. But then like if there's like a new a new launch coming up, you want to simulate like okay, there's been some changes or something. So we did mm -hmm. all sorts of all sorts of modeling and simulation stuff to try to make sure that uh, all of the avionics and valves and stuff that they're actually going to continue functioning after these shocks and like various events that happen while you're getting a, a payload into orbit. Uh, what space agency were you working for here? It was a company called United Launch Alliance. Oh yeah. Uh, a little bit of an unfriendly merger between Boeing and Lockheed Martin. Oh, uh, okay. But they've kind of like moved their satellite launch divisions into like a separate company. Uh, and, and had them working together. So Interesting. yeah, I was working in there. So like our customers were like, yeah, we did launches for like NASA, Air Force, and then like all the bad three letter organizations in America. But Sounds uh, I've moved on from that. I don't do that anymore. How many years ago was that? From 2008 to 2000, end of 2014. Gotcha. So now it's been a solid like nine years since I, since I did that. Right. What's the educational foundation you had to arrive in a position like that? Uh, I got I studied aeronautical and mechanical engineering, so I have like a double major in, in those things. Wow. Okay, so uh, why don't you talk to us then about going from uh, simulating space launches to launching the Polkadot network? What was that journey like, and how, how did you find Polkadot and the Web Three Foundation? Yeah, I mean, there's like a little bit of a, a gap there because I left uh, I left this company in 2014, and I started working on Polkadot like at the end of 2018. So okay. there's like, there like a four year gap in there. And I guess like part of the origin story is like, so I left there in 2014, the Snowden revelations were in 2013. Um, and I think that was like, I don't wanna say like a light bulb moment cause like I didn't really recognize at the time, but looking back, that was like kind of like a big shift in how I started thinking about a lot of things like, I guess like technology, technologically and socially um, and like the role, like the the trust that we place in institutions. Um, that's not the reason I, I left at that time. Like the reason I left was I wanted to be a professional cyclist. Um, 
I found like a semi-pro team in Europe that I, I signed with. So I came, I came to Europe. Actually, just uh, I planned to just do like one season. And I was like, like uh, I didn't even quit. Actually, I took like a one-year leave of absence. I thought I was going to go back. Um, and then I did like pretty well in my first season. But of course, like you do okay. And then it's like, you know, I, I learned some things. I want to do this better. Mm-hmm. So I go, I'm going to do a second season. Uh, and then a third season. And then uh, and I just didn't want to go back to America. I was like, I'm going to stick around Europe. Uh, so I, I started thinking like, okay, like I'm old now. Uh, I'm not gonna make it like past like the semi-pro level of cycling. Like this is, facts are facts. Like this is the end of the road for me, at least in the sport. Um, what am I gonna do next? And um, I, I was like kind of thinking like, I didn't have enough money, like literally like to move to a city. I was living in like a small town, like in, uh, in like the Southwest of Normandy. And um, I was like, what can I do from my apartments? Uh, like I can program stuff. I started like doing some programming. Uh, I, this is actually where like the vibration stuff comes in because like vibration simulation is just time series analysis. And I was like, well, what else can I do with that? Uh-huh. And uh, I was like, well, stocks are basically like uh, like a random time signal. Like I could probably like simulate this. And I basically like thought that I invented algorithmic training. Like, I, like this is my idea. Cool. Of course, like <laughs> a few Google searches later, I realized that some other people were doing this. Um, <laughs> but so I started like trying to think about like, well, how could I like, how could I model stock price and like make decisions about this uh and actually like very quickly found out the practical problem of like the new york stock exchange just doesn't isn't like here's our api like start trading right right? like there's a lot of hurdles to get to get through even to be able to access those markets in a programmatic way and then i realized like even if you can like you're competing against you know hedge funds and stuff they have a team of like 50 people and like their job is just to do this as like as best as possible uh in the most like efficient execution possible and like you're not gonna win like right like i'm sitting like in my like little apartment in france alone yeah like learning about this stuff i'm a beginner against the team of like 50 phds sure like facts are facts like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna win at this does uh, the physical proximity to to the market also matter at the, that sort of level yeah does like it? uh so actually like the the top funds will actually like uh, co-locate their servers like in the same buildings as exchanges because they want like the shortest latency yeah. in, in their order execution. Unbelievable. Um, so yeah, like unless you're like actually like putting your, your systems like in the same location as, as the exchange, uh-huh. you don't, you're not going to be faster. Like even if you, ha- even if you outsmart their, uh, their system, like they're going to execute before you do. Yeah. Um, and, and they're going to beat you to it. So, but I kind of realized like, oh, all these like I had kind of learned about like uh, Bitcoin and and some other stuff like from a few years ago, mm. um, and all the exchanges had like very public APIs and like public documentations. Uh, there were all these like resources like Python libraries and stuff. And like when I did like vibration simulation, we mostly use MATLAB, and so I kind of picked up Python because it was the most simul- similar to to MATLAB. And Python has this library called NumPy, which is basically uh, MATLAB for Python pretty much. So I started working with that and um, I did that for like two years or something. And then I, but then I started to realize like, oh, there's more than just like Bitcoin and ETH. Mm. There's all these other things. And I just started to get curious, like, oh, what's this, what's that? And that's where I really started to learn more about like Web3 and stuff. And in like 2018, like mid 2018, I, I realized I wanted to do like, like 
not so much trading stuff like that wasn't really interesting to me anymore at mm-hmm. least as like a going forward type of path i wanted to like work on one of these protocols so i applied to a bunch of just applied to a bunch of stuff like um mostly like investment research companies um because i kind of figured like well i know some of the fundamentals but i also know like the math and like statistics and like how people would tend to like analyze these things um so i was like okay like i could write some like investment reports and stuff and then uh, i also applied to parity just like uh, applied to like a couple of protocol companies like i thought it was a little bit of a long shot you know just throw my hat in sure sure uh and but then i i got the job at like in the end of 2018 and then uh, here I am, like five years later. Yeah. Well, I, I want to take a moment to say that, um, and let our listeners know as well, that you hosted a podcast for a little bit called the Relay Chain Podcast. Yeah. And before I got deeply involved in the ecosystem, I was just getting into crypto. I was listening to that podcast. I listened to the whole thing on my bicycle, just biking around Toronto. Yeah, cool. And it really showed me how powerful it is to sit down with people who are actually building and to get insights into the way they're thinking. It was just a lot higher bandwidth than reading an article or something like that. Yeah. So I just want to credit you for inspiring uh, this show and a lot of the work that I do. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. So, um, but otherwise you you did that podcast, which is interesting. Uh, What is the scope of your of your uh, of your work with the Web3 Foundation with Parity. Yeah, I mean, now it's a lot more focused than it used to be. Okay. Um, which is partly just due to the fact that like we have a protocol, right? Like in 2018, right. we hadn't launched Polkadot. So there was a lot of like, well, we need to do this and then you have to kind of figure it out. And like, it's not like a big enterprise, right? It's not like, oh, we have this problem, go to that, like the problem division, right? And like, they'll sort it out. It's like, well, no, you, you just have to do it. So you, you kind of like figure stuff out as you go along. Hmm. Um, so there was a lot of that, like, especially in, in the first two years, um, a lot of like just jumping around, like, okay, there's a problem here. Let's figure out how to solve it. Um, there's nobody to really go to. So, but now, like my, now that we have like a lot more like structure and teams and, and stuff and, and an actual protocol, uh, my work now is mostly focused on system parachains. That's right. Okay. So mostly like runtime stuff, not even like broadly system parachains, just like system parachain runtimes. This used to be common good parachains. Yeah. And we've recently changed it to system parachains. What does this all mean? I'll explain the name change before even like deciding what we name them, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you look at just the origins of Polkadot, like what's the problem? When you have a single blockchain and a bunch of people try to transact on it, there's more transactions than the system can handle and uh, it gets congested. Yeah. Right. So how do you go about solving that problem? Well, Polkadot's approach is that you parallelize those transactions into different parachains that are each specialized in a certain type of transaction. And then you connect them via a messaging system and a consensus system. So they all they can all trust each other because they share the same idea that like some block is final at some time. Um, and they can send messages to each other and they can trust those messages because they trust that these blocks are final at a, at a certain time. Polkadot itself is a protocol. It has a bunch of sub-protocols within it. It has staking, it has governance, um, it has crowd loans, it has auctions. Like, uh, It didn't have bridges when, when it launched, but like if you look at like the Polkadot white paper, I don't want to be like a white paper uh, evangelist type of, type of person, but like <laughs> the white paper says bridges all over the place, like bridges to Ethereum and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Um, like this was all meant to be like part of the Polkadot protocol. Well, how do you scale it? What if there's too many transactions for staking and governance, right? You put them in parachains. Hopefully like we get to a point in user experience that it's like architectural, like people don't even realize that they're using the relay chain or a system parachain. It's mm. just Polkadot, right? Like, yeah. like when you go, when you watch a movie on Netflix, right? Um, and then you switch to a different movie, 
It doesn't say, oh no, you have to you have to switch your TV to a different data center to watch this movie, right? It just shows you the movie. Yeah, right? yeah. It's completely abstracted away right. the, the back end of what you're interacting with. It just mm -hmm. says this is what you can do. And that's what we'd really like to see on, on Polkadot is like when you see when you go to like a website, um, it says like, you know, uh, vote on this referendum, vote for somebody in the fellowship, something like that. It doesn't matter if it's on the collectives parachain. It doesn't matter if uh, you're voting on a treasury proposal and the funds are on uh, the asset hub or, you know, the referendum is taking place on the relay chain. The user shouldn't see any of that. They just, they do what they want to do and the, the user interface figures out, well, I need to send this transaction to this chain. Mm -hmm. I need to read the state from this other chain, something like that. Right. And if I understand correctly, the more we uh, take off the relay chain, the more parallel chains the relay chain can support. Yeah, exactly. Right. So like when you submit a transaction on a, on a parachain, it's getting validated by first five validators. Uh, and then they spread it out to some other validators who also will kind of cross validate and like double check it. Mm -hmm. But we can say like maybe like 15 or 20 validators out of a thousand are going to be actually processing a transaction from a parachain. Whereas if you put a transaction on the relay chain, every validator, all thousand validators have to, to process that. So sure. you look at like 20 versus a thousand, which is more efficient, 20, of course. So um, if you can offload that task into a parachain, that actually gives the validators more processing time to mm -hmm. validate more parachains. Right. So there was kind of this estimate like five or six years ago that like, well, Polkadot could probably support 100 parachains. Right. And so people kind of look at it like, oh, well, if, if a system parachain exists, it's taking a slot. Right. right. And it's like, well, no, that was just, that was an estimate. Like that was kind of a guess. Like we think Polkadot can, can have 100 parachains, yeah. but it's not like, Oh, this is going to be an artificial cap of what the system can support. Right. So, like, by actually moving these transactions out of the relay chain into the parachains, we're upping that number. So it's not like just taking a slice of the pie; it's hopefully making the pie bigger. Awesome. All right. So let's break down some of these uh, these chains. So one you mentioned is the Bridge Hub. Yeah. Uh, you work on this. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, the state of the Bridge Hub? Yeah. So the the good part is we've we've launched the hub part. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Now it needs the bridges. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so I have a lot of DMs in my, my chat right now because we're at this conference. Somebody uh -huh. comes to me and says, can, can someone from your team do a presentation about bridges? And I said, you should probably ask somebody from the bridges team. <laughs> like, right? Yeah. This is the, the hub that's meant to support these bridges. Mm -hmm. So there's, of course, the Polkadot Kusama Bridge, Polkadot Ethereum Bridge. These are definitely going, uh, or at least will be proposed to go into the bridge hub. Um, and then I think uh, there's also some talks with Axelar about like getting an Axelar bridge in there as well. Cool. Um, so yeah, these are just like uh, some bridges that the system considers like part of the Polkadot network. Like we want to bridge these other chains. Um, I think for the Polkadot Kusama bridge and Polkadot Ethereum bridge, I think we're within like three months of these actually launching. Like they're getting close, like working out some final kinks. Um, but yeah, we're, we're getting there. Are you serious? Should, I, should we keep that in? Yeah, we can keep that in. All right. Hell yeah, sounds good. <laughs> Hold me to three months. <laughs> well, it doesn't sound like it's up to you, though. You, you say the hub is ready to go. Yeah. 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 So the main point of launching the hub early was that, like, there is a bunch of operational stuff in launching a parachain. You have to mm. get some collators for it. Um, you have to, like, actually provision the hardware. You have to generate the account keys um, and, like, session keys. And, um, of course, like, a referendum on the network to say, like, we want to register this parachain. Like, this is the concept uh, of what it's supposed to do. Um, and then runtime upgrades, of course, you know, 
he needs to do a release. He needs to put that up to governance and stuff. But it's much smaller than like actually launching a parachain from Genesis. Yeah. So the idea was we get the hubs out there, um, get them running, producing blocks. And now all we need to do to actually launch a bridge is just release a new version of that runtime with mm. the bridging pallets mm -hmm. and do a runtime upgrade. I think what we've accomplished is like my team in launching the bridge hub yeah. has made it much easier for the bridges teams to launch their bridge. They don't have to worry about launching a parachain. They just need to like get their pallets ready. Right. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. These pallets are specific to each bridge. So a new bridge yeah. comes in, okay, you're going to install their pallets. Yeah, exactly. Right. And then do those pallets also need to go into any parachain that wants to no. integrate? Okay, because then it all goes from yeah. there. Got it. And some of the cool stuff is that we don't often need to introduce like new transactions for bridging. So like we already have these concepts in XEM, like reserve asset transfer, mm -hmm. right? Um, and people are pretty used to using this for assets among parachains. Like you might do a reserve asset transfer of DOT from the asset hub to Akala, for example, right? Um, well, you can do that to reserve asset transfer and you can just say to Ethereum and it will just go over the bridge hub. Like it just knows to use the bridge hub or to Kusama and it just knows to use the bridge hub. Super cool. Yeah. Awesome. No new transactions. You just say like, I want to bridge KSM to Polkadot. Yep. Um, and it's just like sending KSM to some other parachain on uh, on Kusama. And it just gets routed via the bridge because it sees like, oh, this is going, uh, it's not going to another parachain here. It's going to some other consensus system that's not Kusama. Uh, and the bridge hub should know how to deal with other consensus systems. So we're going to send it to the bridge hub. And the bridge hub is going to say, ah, oh, this is going to Polkadot. Amazing. So we send it there. All right, so that's the bridge hub. This is routing assets. Then you're working on something completely different. This is the collective's parachain. So yeah. this is organizing society, organizing social groups and organizing privilege and power. Um, what can you tell us about the collectives? How yeah, so uh, it, it may have been misnamed. Uh, okay. <laughs> like, because we started talking about it after we launched it. My idea at first was like, it just holds collectives. Um, we started talking, okay, it might become like just the general governance chain. Um, as we move governance from the relay chain into a parachain, yeah, yeah, we might want to put that just on the collectives chain and not having like a governance chain and a collectives chain. But anyway, that's kind of naming things, and okay. uh, we just renamed statement to asset hub, so we can rename things. But yeah. like, uh, I'm putting it out there, we might want to rename the collectives parachain at some point in the future to the governance hub or something like that. Yeah, something okay. like that. Understood. Um, but anyway, for yeah. now, uh, it, it holds collectives, and uh, one thing. I, to be clear about that like maybe was not clear is like these collectives are meant to be like as you said like power within the network mm -hmm. so they're supposed to be collectives that have a mandate of serving the polka dot network in general um it's not like a general dow chain or something like oh i want to start my collective about this i'm going to put it on the collective chain like they should have some role in making polka dot network better okay like, okay on the, the network level Understood. Okay, so I can't like launch an organization unrelated to Polkadot on the collective side. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So the first two have already launched. There's Polkadot Alliance mm -hmm. and uh, Polkadot Core Fellowship. Okay. Uh, so those are already on the collective chain. We have more collectives on the way. Right. Um, some concretely that are like close to launching, and, and some that are more ideas right now. But uh, I'm quite excited to see a lot more of these launch and to try to sketch out like what exactly their power will be within the network. Like with the core fellowship, we know they have the privilege over this whitelist origin, right? Um, that they can whitelist certain calls Yeah. Um, that can then be passed by the public on this whitelisted caller track. Mm -hmm. um, so that's like, that's their 
only power that like concretely that's what they do um but there's all these other fellowships or like collectives that we have ideas for and quite exciting to see like well how do we concretely make or like represent or express what their role in the network is interesting well so what are the primitives that are there now for a collective like like let's go with the fellowship what, what does that look like as far as the structure of the society goes yeah so like kind of the the foundational piece of one of these collectives is this palette that's called ranked collective so there's this old palette that like the council and tech committee were based off of called collectives mm. um and this was very simple you're either a member of it or you're not okay right um ranked collective you have different ranks within uh with in this collective and so there are paths of like uh, people should be promoted or people should be like have uh, more voting power than than another um, So that's kind of like underlies like who the members are So you have like some mapping of like, you know rank five is these members rank three is these members and, and so on Right, but then what they can't actually do anything with, with that, right? So um, then there's some other palettes that, that go on top of it So um, you have to say like well, how are these members chosen, right? Yeah um, Of course, you can just say like it's the root origin um it can also be self-describing, like you can have some seeding process, but then also say like, well, once we have members in this collective, they can choose who the other members come to this collective are. Sure. Um, you can also uh, hook it up to another palette and say like, well, we want to connect this to an elections palette, right? And lets people uh, vote in, in like some, some other way than like going through a referendum. This is kind of like how the council worked in like GovV1. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, then like the next major piece of this puzzle would be the the referenda palette so um this is kind of where you convert this group into some kind of like concrete power or like origin in the network sure so you'll say like you configure all these tracks and just like uh just like an open gov like what the public sees they're going to see like oh there's like a you know a medium spender track and a root track and a staking admin track right like this instance of the the referenda palette also has these different tracks to represent the different levels like there's going to be like a level four track which is um all of the members of this ranked collective who are level four or above right and then you can say well this origin that corresponds to passing a referendum of level four and above can do x in the network right gotcha okay so in the uh, fellowship for example how do people move up the ranks in, in this particular expression yeah, so they are voted on by people who are two above them. Okay. Yeah, so if you're if you are like, uh, well, I'm like I'm a rank two, so if I wanted to move to rank three, I would have to go uh, and basically get all the rank fours or above to to make a referendum and promote me from two to three. Right. And if I want to go three to four, then it would have to be the fives and above who would have to to vote on this, and then of course, uh, I think the highest right now is six, but there's nine ranks. So how do you go from six to seven? Yeah. Then you actually have to do a public like a root origin referendum in the whole network to promote the top people. So what, Gav is six? Yeah, I think Gav, Basti, and Rob are six. And if they ever want to be seven, they need to campaign for it. Yeah. Oh, they need to change the root origin, uh, through the root origin. Yeah, they need to do a referendum through the root origin. How do people move down the ranks? Like, what if you, like, you know, just go to the mountains and we never hear from you except, <laughs> except yeah. when you vote or something <laughs> like that? How, how do we get people down? This is quite new logic. Uh, so it's in it's in like kind of like the manifesto that, that Gav wrote um, about like the rules. If you're not active for some period, then you should be demoted. Yeah. Um, so there is like a I think also like yeah the people who are ranked one or above or two or above can can demote you. Hmm. Um, but I think there is actually some on chain logic that's being introduced now that says like if 
there is like a challenge period. So like every three or six months, uh, members of this collective, members of the fellowship are supposed to be challenged and, and like defends their, defend their rank basically. Yeah, yeah, right. And if they don't show up for it, then they automatically get demoted. Cool. Yeah. Um, people on Twitter wanted to know about the Ambassadors Collective. I think this is one of the ones that's coming up here. Yeah. Um, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so that's something we've been working on for about six months. Uh, okay. Getting the Ambassador Program into the Collective's chain. Yeah. So there's a couple of things. There's like the technical side and the social side. Right. So we had the Fellowship and the Alliance, right? So the first thing that I did was I started coding up an Ambassador Program palette. Okay. And then I started thinking, this is stupid, right? Like. We don't want to have a new palette every time. Like, it, it shouldn't start from scratch every time we yeah, do this. Like, yeah, yeah. These things should be reusable. Mm -hmm. So me and uh, this guy on my team, Mukaram, we started discussing like, okay, like, can we take some bundle of, of palettes and say like, this would be a, a collective. And then maybe they need like a little bit of extension. So like in the fellowship example, you have like Reigns Collective, um, Referenda, and then like there's this little add-on for like all the tracks that go into the, the Referenda palette. Um, and then there's like one extension that's like very specific to like the promotion and demotion rules of the fellowship. That's okay, right? Like, cause like 90% of the code is generic of like, this is a collective. And then you make like a little bit of an extension that's specific to that. Cool. So then we started thinking, okay, like how can we reduce the technical barrier to launching a, a collective? Let's try to get this set of palettes, like a bundle together. That's like, this is a collective. So we started working on that. Um, and I, and I think like technically we're, we're most of the way there on that, that like we can like just make a new instance of this bundle of pallets and then we can just kind of configure it for the ambassador program. Then on the social part, this has actually been maybe a little bit more challenging than I expected, right? Sure, yeah. With the fellowship, we launched it from scratch. Like there was no fellowship, hmm. uh, you know, Gav kind of published this idea with like all the rules, like this is how long, these are the contributions that it should take to reach a level six. Um, this is how long it should take and these kind of guidelines and everybody kind of got seated and kind of like came into this organization with knowing like this is the general concept and like mission of this organization. Uh, I think taking an existing organization and then trying to transition it to something that's going to be on chain right. is a lot more challenging. Yeah. And I didn't, quite expect like all the challenges that we would run into and some of it is just like really based on longevity right like when the ambassador program started it was like two years before Polkadot even launched right so if you think about like somebody who's been a Polkadot ambassador for two years and Polkadot hasn't even launched like they've taken a lot of like personal risk like they've invested a lot of time sure. to advocate for like be an ambassador for something that doesn't, doesn't even exist yet like yeah. that's cool and like that should definitely be recognized yeah, right yeah, like yeah. but now we think like if somebody came in now is like i want to join the polka ambassador program it doesn't make sense that in like two years they become like you know like a very like highly recognized member of the program right mm. like we should be thinking more about like it should take like a decade to get to the top level of this thing because like there is like the program is in place right yeah yeah and so like trying to transition the rules of this organization from something that existed like pre-launch of Polkadot into something that's really meant to be like a steward of like uh, ecosystem growth over like a period of decades. Right. How do you kind of like keep the existing members happy 
and also transition into something that's going to be long term. And this is like, I don't mean to like, this is maybe like sounding like critical of the ambassador program. I no. think like all organizations go through this. Like, yeah, exactly. You go from like a startup that with an idea mm-hmm. to like a company with a product and like service level contracts and stuff like this. This is a very hard transition to make. And yeah. like, this has been like an interesting uh, problem as we do the ambassador program. And if I understand it correctly, the ambassador program itself is is evolving at yeah. this time too, right? Yeah. Like people are saying ambassador program 2.0 and all this, right? Exactly. So, crazy. And then, okay, and then what you're speaking to there is is recognizing people based on the time that they've contributed. But I'm sure there's also other factors too, like the actual contributions they've made just besides yeah. sticking around, right? Exactly. That stuff isn't all deterministic, right? Like yeah, how, yeah. Do you, how do you, how do you judge that? Yeah. yeah. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. And then I think the ambassador program is also an example of a collective that will have uh, its own treasury as yeah. well, right? So how does that fit into uh, the collective's world? Yeah, perfect question. Because I was just thinking like, I wanted to talk about that. Um, so the treasury pallets is actually something that I envision as just being part of this bundle of pallets. Yeah. So to, to date, the treasury, there's only been one treasury pallet and it's like the main polka dot treasury. Yeah. Um, but I actually kind of imagine that like, the fellowship, the alliance, the ambassador program, uh, the ecosystem tech fellowship, um, all these other fellowships would actually have an instance of a treasury palette themselves. Without even going into the fact that like we're kind of working on upgrading the treasury palette to be able to sort of support spending assets on other chains. Like right now, treasury, it just spends dot on Polkadot. Yeah. We want to be able to spend uh, DOT on Asset Hub. We want to be able to spend USDT on Asset Hub. Yes. We want to be able to spend something on some other parachain, right? Um, so we're kind of working on that. So like, when you think treasury palette, don't just think like, oh, the DOT treasury, right? Like, think just uh, some logic for how you spend assets, and they can be any assets, and they can be anywhere. Okay. So if we take this palette and like just put it into part of the bundle. My idea is that a lot of these collectives can in some way become like self-managing and that they should be like, they should have some mandate to the network, right? Like um, some agreement with the network. Um, and so the network can kind of say like, we're going to give, you know, 1 million dot or 5 million dot or whatever to the ambassador program treasury, right? And then they can manage that. And that, that solves a couple of problems. One. Um, the ambassador program can maybe like pay salaries to its members, mm-hmm. um, right? Two, it can take a lot of the the proposal queue or like just like overwhelming amount of information in OpenGov yeah. uh, and start to put it into groups that should be more specialized and appropriate, right? Yeah. So like if you want to host, um, you know, an event in Seattle or something and you go to make like a public referendum, like why do like 99% of people care about that, right? Mm-hmm. And like, I mean, I'm looking at like, on my mind, I'm thinking about like, oh, I, I have like this, you know, bridge hub runtime upgrades and I need to like do all this testing and like I'm focused on that. Like, I don't want to sound demeaning, but like I'm not going to look at like a treasure proposal for like, oh, I want to host like like a meetup here, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Um, I have like other things that I'm looking at and I'm not even the most qualified. Like, I don't know about marketing. Like, yeah, who yeah. am I to say if this event is worth spending this dot on, right? Well, it's good of you I to say know. that because there's many people who don't even realize that. They will say something yeah. and they have no <laughs> idea. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, like, if you can do these through, like, specialized programs yeah. and, and say, like, well, go to the ambassador program and, like, ask. They have a budget for, like, events, even for non-ambassadors, right? Like, mm. for hosting Polkadot meetups, right? Mm-hmm. Like, 
there was this big discussion about like, should the Polkadot Treasury fund uh, subscan for all parachains, right? Well, uh, a lot of people probably don't know the difficulty of running a, a parachain and, and your infrastructure needs. But like, I bet the parachain ecosystem uh, technical fellowship would know about that. Yeah. And they could decide, is this worth spending our budget on, mm -hmm. right? Um, it also enables like much faster, like a collective can pass something much faster because it's a smaller set of members. Mm -hmm. um, and they're in some way, like, I don't want to say like every member is trusted, but like the collective itself is somewhat trusted, right? Because like it was seeded by, by governance with some mandate and it's supposed to uphold that, yeah. right? And so like overall, like if the voting is, if people are ranked appropriately, then like they should act in accordance with their mandate and like the rights proposals should pass and the wrong ones should not, right? Yeah. So like they, they can pass a little bit faster and their scope is a lot less, like it's not the root origin, right? It's just like it's their treasury spend origin for like their treasury allocation that they've gotten for one year, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not like network critical. Um, and, and what that enables is like just faster treasury management. Like if you wanted to like make a proposal to the Polkadot treasury, like we should convert 10% of the Polkadot treasury to a stable coin. First of all, it's going to take like 28 days to pass this proposal, right? That is going to be like the most front run transaction in the world right like everybody yeah. sees it coming yeah. like it's just it's not very effective right uh, yeah but like if you have a smaller treasury if you have like a you know like a two million dot treasury and you say like look we have like these things like these services that as part of our collective we want to guarantee for the next year we want to be able to make sure we can host this many events we want to be able to host polka dot decoded next year and we know it's going to have like some kind of bound of fixed cost, we should convert part of our treasury to a stable coin yeah. to make sure that like we can guarantee that these things are going to happen over the next year. It makes sense that like these collectives can actually take a more active role mm. in managing their treasury and what their treasury looks like compared to Polkadot Network. Not just from like a uh, say like principles point of view that like the the Polkadot main treasury is funded by inflation. Mm. So of course it's going to come in as the dot token always. Um, but just on a practical level, like it can, you can be a lot more like hands-on and active with how you how you manage this than what you can do in like the Polkadot OpenGov uh, model that just takes a longer time, right? Yeah. And then that hopefully means like, um, of course, like if you do want to host an event and like the ambassador program turns you down, there's still OpenGov. Like you can yeah. still go. They're not the say, boss like, of hey, everything. Yeah. These guys turn me down. I want to bring this up to the entire network, like yeah. the Supreme Court, if you will. Ah. I want to raise this. Um, you can still do that. It's not like we just hand over like all control to like these collectives. Right. But it's just like it takes a lot of the noise out of like the main governance tracks of of the Polkadot relay chain or like the core governance, if you will. And it pushes it into groups that are specialized in dealing with those types of decisions. Yeah. And if you don't like the decision, you can still appeal it, but mm -hmm. it hopefully actually addresses the main concerns at a like lower level, like more towards the edges. Yeah, this solves a, a lot of problems that uh, I see some people in the ecosystem trying to solve with something much more simple, like the bounties palette. Yeah. Right. Which is to me like highly centralized, but where here we have this sort of like fluid um, exchange of power over time and you have this sort of like social reputation system and whatnot. Yeah. It seems a lot safer yeah. than trusting it to a few people on a multi-sig. Yeah, I think, so I actually got this idea uh, just a couple of days ago. So it's like, it's not implemented at all. Okay. Uh, and I might be saying like complete BS. Cool. Uh, this idea came from Mukaram. He said like, hey, I, I was kind of thinking of tra changing the treasury to, to use this new trait. And the way it works is like, you get this thing approved and then you actually have to claim it. 
So like instead of having like a treasury proposal pass and then being paid out, mm -hmm. it passes and then it's basically like available to be claimed, mm -hmm. right? Um, up until like a certain deadline. Um, and I thought like, well, this is actually cool because what we could do is replace the bounty mechanism with like this like staged claiming. Yeah. So like if you, because we always run into this, like I'm sure you've run into this problem. Like um, you say like, I have this big roadmap and I want to make like one treasury proposal yeah. to, to execute it. And mm -hmm. then people say like, well, we don't want to trust you to do this whole roadmap. Mm -hmm. Why don't you make a proposal for each milestone? And then you say, well, then I'm just spending like 50% of my time on lobbying and governance yeah, and yeah. like trying to justify my next milestone, mm -hmm. right? Um, I think a, a cool alternative to doing this would basically be to pass a proposal for the entire like like a big project. Yeah. But say like, okay, this is over two years and like every three months you can claim like one eighth of this, Yeah. right? And the default would be like, if this gets passed, then every three months, the proposer can just make their claim. Okay, I did like another three months, like here's my milestone, I'm just gonna claim the next payment. Sure. If you're not actually delivering the milestones, then there could be a referendum to override the default and just say like, yeah. let's cancel the future payouts. Exactly, this, right? but that's still up to the entire yeah. uh, voter base. So the default is to pay this out over one year or two okay. years so or whatever. it's optimistic. It's optimistic, yeah. but if the proposer isn't living up to what they promised, right. it can just be cut off in the middle. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, That brings up the problem though of the volatile assets, right? And I think we're gonna get into this when we talk about the asset hub. Yeah. Because if I make a, a proposal with a two year runway, in dot, well, the dot could be worth ten times more in in eight months, you yeah. know, and but the, that all that dot is still locked up, right? Yeah. So how do we deal with this problem of funding things through a volatile asset? I mean, everybody wants stablecoin proposals, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> sounds good. How do we get there? So actually, making the proposals is simple. Like, I mean, with the updates that we're doing now to Treasury Palette, it'll be able to support any asset on any chain, right? The problem then actually becomes how does the treasury actually get the stablecoin, right? Actually paying it out or making a proposal is easy. Sure. How does the treasury get the stablecoin? That's right, yeah. We're working on this like assets conversion uh, feature uh -huh. that will go into Assets Hub. Um, the first goal of that is actually just to handle transaction fees. But then of course, like, yeah, we hope this actually does more than just handle transaction fees, right? So like one idea is that it could actually support like the treasury being able to make these exchanges and, and pay out um pay out proposals in stable coins. Yeah, right. Okay, so you call it asset conversion. There's some drama, some chaos around the previous idea of, or the previous naming of uh, a DEX. Yeah. Are you still approaching it with like a Uniswap V1 kind of very simplistic uh Yeah, so mechanism? it's um I guess it's like one of these like in between. It's like the actual logic is Uniswap v2. Okay. Um, but we've configured it to be restricted such that every pair needs to have dot as one of the assets in the pair. Mm -hmm. So that's like from a user experience standpoint, it might feel more like Uniswap v1. Um, but under the hood, it's Uniswap v2. And when you say from a user experience, is there going to be an official interface that users can interact and exchange no. assets. No, Not this is just logic that's accessible to anybody exactly. through XCM. So anybody could build a, anybody could build an interface. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the interface is like the chain API. So like, um, yeah, just like people build wallets that do balance transfers, they can add this functionality into their wallet or UI. Um, but like, there isn't going to be an official one. Okay, gotcha. And originally, you were talking about pairs between dot and KSM and USDT and ETH. Is that still the original uh, uh, So plan? 
creating pairs is actually permissionless. Like anybody yeah. can create any pair uh-huh. as long as dot is one of the assets. So there can be like dot ETH, dot KSM, dot USDT. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody can create these. Okay, interesting. Yeah. All right, and then this brings up the big question of liquidity. Yeah. So where do these pools live? How do these pools get filled? How are they maintained? What are the plans here? Yeah, so I think the first question is like, is liquidity important and and why? Okay. And then what are the objectives, right? So Mm -hmm. the first objective for this uh, assets conversion, so as, okay, I'll make a side note here about like why we're calling it assets conversion and not DEX. Okay. so I'm an engineer, and when I heard the word DEX, I immediately think about like the protocol, like what's actually, how does this thing work, right? Um, it turns out a lot of people think more about like the experience of using this, like the web, like the you know, uh, like Uniswap app or something like that. Yeah. Um, and so like kind of like the full stack, like like a product, right, and not a protocol. Right. Um, and so that there were a lot of people confused. They're like, oh, you're saying uh, a DEX, but it doesn't have a like a UI. Like then what is it, right? Um, and so I've kind of gone away from the, the DEX naming and just say like, it's, it converts assets, right? Like it's assets okay. conversion palettes. Okay. Uh, so hopefully it's like, just to emphasize that like it's a protocol and not like a, a product, right? Yeah. So the number one goal of this protocol is to convert transaction fees. So there's a couple of like problems with paying asset, paying transaction fees and other assets. And it's, it's two-sided. One is like from the user side, the system only knows like a fee and dot. So how does how do you figure out like how much USDT to pay? Yeah. For example, right? Yeah. Um, and then the second side is from the collator side, like the collator wants to pay their bills, right? Like they don't want to deal with like a hundred assets that, right. that are coming in because like the user pays transaction fees and whatever. Sure. And these are going to the collator and they're like, I don't want to deal with this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the asset conversion palette, it handles both sides of that, right? Because like on the payment side, we had to first, we had this like concept of sufficiency, which we still do. Um, but it would say like, okay, you can pay transaction fees and assets that are sufficient. Um, but it, we're really placing a lot of trust in the assets that are sufficient. So like, like why is USDT the only asset that's sufficient on Asset Hub now, right? It's because you're basically giving like the issuer of that asset, they can issue their own asset to pay transaction fees in. So they could pay a lot of transaction fees, right? Because mm. they can create it, right? Mm. So. We have to be quite strict about we, as in like Polkadot governance, um, have to be quite strict about like what is considered sufficient for fee payment. Um, on the collator side, like we want to just give them dot, right? And so with assets conversion, what we can say is like um, the system gives you a transaction fee in dot. The collator wants dot. As long as you can convert your asset to dot, you're good, right? And so that lets us open up the um, the fee-paying assets to not just sufficient assets, but any assets, um, because that dot for the transaction fee has already been put in to this pair, right? It's already in this pool. Mm. Um, and then the collator just gets dot, so that solves their problem, right? So um, it's kind of like a, a two-for-one uh, on solving that. And that's, like, the reason I say that is, like, is liquidity important? We're talking about, like, on... On Asset Hub, transaction fees are one tenth of what they are on the relay chain. So, uh, if we're talking about like this, like very very small balances, like point zero 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 one dot, is liquidity super important? Mm. Like I would say no. Mm-hmm. Like if these pools have like even like a couple hundred dollars worth of liquidity, this is plenty, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. you can handle secure transaction fee payments with almost no liquidity. 
Uh, so that's really good, right? It's like, right. so the first thing I would kind of say is like, well, liquidity is not like really a huge problem, right? Yeah. However, if we want to do like more, like the treasury wants to use this for USDT or like other stable coins, of course, liquidity does become an issue, right? Right. Um, so yeah, that I don't think uh, we have a, a super good answer for. Um, I think there are some people who are, who are like interested in, in providing liquidity for this pair. Um, but we haven't like really talked about so much like at a protocol level. It's hard to compete with staking, you know, of course, um, as far as like uh, rewards go. But the other cool thing is like uh, these. So of course, like you create a pair or you put liquidity into a pair and you get an LP token, right? Just like Uniswap. Yeah. Uh, so these LP tokens are actually just other assets. They're in another instance of the assets palette, like the same assets palette that uh, we do like stable coins or like foreign assets in. Mm -hmm. um, it's just another instance of this. So it's the exact same interface. So you can transfer these to other parachains. And I could actually see like a kind of service market evolving. So like if you wanted your parachain token to have like some liquidity with the DOT token on the asset hub, asset conversion system. Um, for fees, for these small micro transactions or for anything okay like if you wanted like higher liquidity for, for whatever reason sure. right yeah um, and you want some incentives right um when you put liquidity into this pair you're getting an lp token for the dot parachain token uh pairing right okay you can just transfer that lp token to another parachain and that parachain can have its own lp staking incentive right hmm. okay um, so that pair like a parachain if they want their own if they want their pair with DOT to have uh, liquidity, they can make their own incentive program around it. Yes, yes. Okay. It's not limited to the protocols that are on Asset Hub. Okay, I understand. Yeah, yeah. I got that. And I, I would even see like service services evolving around this, right? Like you could have a parachain uh, that's not a DeFi parachain. And they're like, you know what? We want to have liquidity between our parachain token and DOT. Right. But we don't we don't want we don't to do deal DeFi. with like yeah. making an LP staking program. Like mm -hmm. that's not our, our specialty. But there are DeFi specialized sure. parachains. And I could see them offering like almost a menu, right? Right. Like, hey, uh, you know, like if you send us your native token or whatever token you want to do your rewards in, um, or incentives in, and then uh we'll give you like an off the shelf um, staking incentive program that people can use. Nice. That's an interesting idea. Now, what about uh, becoming a, a router for liquidity that exists in other parachains in the ecosystem? What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that's a problem. into those pools. I think it really needs to be solved. Um, I think it, it came up a lot in the initial discussions around like even having like an assets conversion protocol on yeah. Asset Hub, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people are like, well, this is just going to fragment liquidity more. Um, I think this has to be solved in general, like if a protocol is like weakened or broken by like having N plus one of the same protocol, there's something fundamentally wrong with that, right? Like um, if you look at, for example, like um, like traditional assets, like the stock markets, most people might think like, oh, it's New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. Hmm. But that's kind of like the front of what you see, right? Hmm. Like there's over a hundred exchanges in New York alone and then you add in like Chicago, London, all these other kind of like financial centers, like like hundreds, if not thousands of stock exchanges in the world, right? Mm -hmm. um, but like you go, you watch the news and then you say like, what's well, the price of Apple? They're gonna give you, they're gonna show you one price, right? Yeah. You yeah. go to your broker, they're gonna tell you one price. And like their job 
is uh, supposedly to, to find the exchange where they can do the best execution of what you want at the right. best price, mm -hmm. right? Uh, whether they do that faithfully or not is uh, a trust question, right? Uh, yeah. like, do we trust brokers to, to be acting in, in that way? Anyway, sorry, side note. Yeah. Um, but that's what they're supposed to do, right? But like the stock exchange isn't broken because there's a 101th stock exchange, right? Like it doesn't make sense, right? So I think there has to be more protocols, whether they're on chain or like just user, like front end based or like um, infrastructure based. Uh, there has to be a way for people to, to deal with this problem of having assets in multiple places and, mm -hmm. and finding the best way like the user basically saying, I have this and I want that, find the best way to do it. Right. Okay, gotcha. I feel like a lot of the discussions around when it was called the DEX and everything in all that days, I think a lot of it sprung from this idea of uh, parity or what we call parity, having this privileged position in the ecosystem to build whatever they want. And there's a lot of fear that that's going to supersede what maybe more independent organizations bring to the table there. And it kind of brings up like a a wider conversation about, you know, for instance, like it's it's always Joe Petrowski putting forward the runtime upgrade and all this stuff. And, and this is likely appropriate for this stage of development for the network. But how do you personally square up this idea of driving forward into the unknown leading uh, versus the wider goal of decentralizing the network for, uh, for sustainability? Yeah, I mean, I think there has to be a, a little bit of a shift in mindset of mm -hmm. like, um, more than one is okay. I yeah. mean, this is like same for like assets conversion. Like somebody uh, said to me like a couple months ago, like, you know, oh, I heard somebody else is building a, a bridge because they don't think you're gonna be able to launch this bridge on Bridge Hub. Okay. And I was like, okay, great, cool, yeah, more bridges. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, it's it's not meant to be like this is the one thing, right? Like other people can can still build. Um, it's just meant to be like part of the Polkadot system, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And I think there's like two ways that a lot of people come in to Polkadot. Like one of the core principles or like ideas was that um, people can build their products on top of Polkadot and not expose Polkadot to their users, mm. right? So like if you build um, an application as a smart contract on Ethereum, you have to tell your users about Ethereum. Like you have to get some ETH to pay gas to use our application, right? Like you can't get around that, at least now. Um, and so like one of the value propositions of Polkadot was like, you can build your parachain. And as long as you've secured your parachain slot, the people who are building on your parachain or like your users of your application, they don't even need to know that it's a parachain. They don't need to know about Polkadot, about Dot, nothing, right? Like totally, yeah. it's your thing. Like you have full, um, like kind of like sovereignty or like decision-making ability to design your product without having to expose our product to your users, mm -hmm. right? Um, but then there's other people that come in and they're like, I I already am interested in Polkadot and like I want to do my thing on Polkadot, right? And so they want like a Polkadot way to do this thing. And I see a lot of like the system stuff as like stepping stones, right? Like you might come in uh, and say like, I want to use, use Dot and do NFTs or whatever, right? I say, okay, like we have that. Like we have NFTs on Asset Hub and they come in and it's like, they start using it and they're like, this is really opinionated. Like, this is cool, but like, it's opinionated. Like, I want to do this like special thing. Can I do this? And I'm like, no, but there's like 20 teams in the ecosystem that do NFTs. Mm -hmm. And like, now that you're in and like, you're kind of familiar with like the Polkadot architecture and like um, infrastructure and like block explorers and, and like all the stuff that goes around building on Polkadot, you're more educated about like how you can make 
maybe choose like the more specialized uh, protocol that you want to actually go to. Okay, but um, I don't know if that really answers like the okay. the deeper question of like uh, specifically the point of privilege that uh, a legacy organization like Parity has and, and all the employees yeah. and making core protocol changes, especially when it comes to changes that break tech that other teams have built. How, how do we how do we deal with that going forward? And like, what's the path toward a greater yeah. decentralization? So I think we're working on it quite yeah. a lot. Uh, so the fellowship is number one. Like, um, so we're in the process now of actually just moving all the runtimes out of Parity, the organization, and into the fellowship GitHub organization. Right. And actually having like the CI enforce that PRs get approval from like fellows, I think like rank four and above. Um, and there are like non-Parity people in that. So yeah. like this will have to get approval from non-parity people to go into runtimes. Um, so definitely trying to push like these runtime decisions outside of parity yep. so that parity is just building like the node and like some of the core libraries, but to actually get something into a runtime, it has to go through the fellowship and not parity. I think also like just the fellowship, the way it's structured is like, uh, it's meant to have like, the members are meant to be paid, right? Yeah. So um, parity was kind of set up to builds like the Polkadot like initial like implementation, right? But we definitely want to move away from like where parity is like the sole implementers uh, or have like this kind of privileged position, right? Mm -hmm. So um, having people in the fellowship who are actually getting paid a salary to be a Polkadot core developer yeah. and not necessarily be a member of parity, like they're being paid as a member of the fellowship, not as an employee of right. parity. Their incentives like, are coming from the token holders. Exactly. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So trying to move that stuff out of parity. Uh, for sure, parity has a privileged position. Like there's no way around it, right? Yeah. Like that's reality. Makes sense though. Yeah. But we're trying to reduce that as much as possible. Amazing. So from your point of view, we are still decentralizing. We're not. Uh, digging our heels in or anything that maybe may be perceived in other. I mean, we're we're always decentralizing, right? Like, yeah. I don't think you can ever like say it's completely done. I mean, I think like we've gone like this unstoppable route, right? Like, yeah. rather than decentralized, because like decentralized isn't like so uh, expressive of, of what you're trying to accomplish. But unstoppable, it does say like we don't want any one entity. Uh, to be exposed to like the ability to actually stop this protocol from functioning or nice. evolving, right? Yeah. And so like, but of course the the things that can stop the thing evolve, and right. So you can always say like, at some point, this is like the most critical vulnerability, or like this is the point that could be pressed on to stop the system. How do we uh, decentralize this point so that it's not stoppable? Yeah, amazing. But Joe, you have so much going on. You, you, you have your mind on so many different parts of the ecosystem that are going to have a profound impact into the future. Um, do you ever stop thinking about Polkadot? When you're doing a couple hundred Ks in the mountains of Switzerland, what do you think about? Yeah, uh, I try to sometimes, but uh, yeah, I am thinking about quite a few things. Um, no, I mean, like, yeah, I'm really into, uh, especially skiing, like that's kind of my, my main sport. I, <laughs> I like backcountry, like ski touring. Uh, mountaineering stuff and uh, for sure I, I think like part of the reason I enjoy that stuff is like I get to a certain point in the day where like um, I can't really think about anything like I always kind of start like the first mm. two hours I have like all this like stuff going in, in my mind the like you know work and, or you know stuff that's going on and then like after like six hours or something I'm like <laughs> okay like I'm gonna take like 20 more steps 
and then like see where I'm at. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I need to get over this past. Right. <laughs> like, right. My problem right now <laughs> is like, how do I get up the next hundred meters? Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> and then I kind of like I'm so tired that I'm dealing with like much smaller problems. Right. I got yeah. you. Yeah. I, I kind of enjoy that. Uh, of, the, of those types of activities. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for taking some time to uh, open your mind and uh, tell us what's going on in there today. Yeah. Um, thank you for all the work you do in the ecosystem. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun. Like, I mean, I like I don't think I could work on something that I'm not interested in. And um, there's like I do a lot, but like there's honestly like a lot of times on like some, sometimes I try to take a vacation. Like, okay, two weeks, I'm not gonna like check anything, you know, <laughs> and, and go away. But there's a lot of times where it's like you know Sunday afternoon, and I'm like. I feel like working on this thing. Yeah. And I, and I go do it, right? So, um, I mean, I just, I really love it. I love the people that I work with. I love the, the concepts, like the Web3 philosophy and, and ideals. And um, it's just like, it's a really cool and, and fun and interesting thing to work on. Amazing. Well, dude, thanks a lot for coming on the show, okay? And uh, yeah. maybe we'll touch base in a year and the whole ecosystem <laughs> will look totally different. Right? That's, I mean, that's how it's been the last five years. Like, it's always changing. That's fun. Cool. Thanks a lot, buddy. Yeah, thank you.